0: If you have a Bible, you can open to First John chapter two. We'll look at verses eighteen through twenty-seven. The Text is also printed in the bulletin for you. First John two eighteen to twenty-seven. So, um, fairly important questions. You know, what is eternal life? You know, that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot uh, in the church. Um, What is it? What is eternal life? How can I know that I have it? How can I rest assured that I have a real relationship with God, that I'm saved, uh, that I have eternal life? There's a sense in which these are uh, fundamental questions, kind of the basic stuff of Christianity. And there's another sense in which it's the stuff that people continue to wrestle with who have been Christians for a long time, trying to figure out what it means, what is eternal life, and can I know that I have that? Uh, and there are a lot of reasons why we might be confused about how to know God or why we might feel uh, insecure about whether we really do know him or not. And that's why John's writing a letter as we've been talking about for a couple months. Um, he's, he's writing his letter to clear things up for us to settle our hearts with full assurance and full joy of knowing that we have a real relationship with God. And up to this point, he's been talking a lot about how if you do have that relationship, if you do have eternal life, this, this knowledge of God, then it'll change your life. There will be external, visible indicators uh, of the reality of your knowing him. And now he fixes kind of on a, um, another test or another proof of your spiritual relationship. It's whether we persevere together in the faith, in the truth of the gospel. Um, almost Whether you believe the right things and keep believing those things, right? Right. Um, It makes a lot of sense to approach the question that way, the question of our assurance. I mean, the question really is, how can I believe, how can I know that I have eternal life? And so the question's best answered by saying, this is what you should believe. This is what you should know. This is what you need to know. Uh, And the the content of that answer, this is what you need to know, this is what you should believe, the content of that answer... um, The substance of what you need to know and believe is not a set of rules. It's not a lifestyle that you need to adopt. It's not just a philosophy or um, a set of abstract doctrines. You know, what you need to know in order to have assurance about your relationship with God, what you need to know is good news. It's not good advice, it's not good rules. It's good news. That's what you need to know. You need to know the gospel, which is entirely about who God is, what he's done, his finished work on your behalf, his presence in your life, the promises that he's made. And you need to know um, that truth, the truth of the gospel. You need to know that good news in a certain way, right? Um, not merely intellectually, certainly not proudly or self-importantly knowing that truth, um, you need to know what God reveals about himself in a personal way, in a meaningful, uh, relational way, a real way, because after all, we are talking about having a relationship with God. That's, that's what eternal life consists of. So, um, so John likes to talk about this kind of relational knowing of God uh, in terms of abiding. That's the word that he uh, likes to use, abiding in this relationship That's that's the language that he uses. It's something he probably picked up from Jesus. Abiding language is some of his favorite language to communicate the way that we know God through the truth of the gospel. He uses that word, or some form of it, um, 67 times in all of his writing. 67 times, and uh, six times in our passage this morning. So we're going to look at what it means to abide, and uh, you can be assured... That you, know, that you can know that you have eternal life by three ways of abiding, right? Abiding in the truth, abiding in the church, and abiding in the Trinity, right? That's, that's what we're going to look at this morning. You can be assured, you can know that you have eternal life by abiding in the truth, abiding in the church, and abiding in the Trinity. So, um, so let's pray, and we'll read 1 John 2. Father, we pray for your help as we consider your word. This is um, very important material that uh, we need to understand, and and beyond simply understanding it, merely understanding it, we need it to make an impact in our hearts, and so we need your Holy Spirit for that. We need his help in illuminating our minds, uh, making us able to understand your word and to be changed by it into the likeness of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here, uh, as we come to this point in 1 John 2, we're starting to see more of what precipitated John's writing. What was the occasion for it? Why did he need to write? He probably wrote this letter to one of the churches that he started to encourage them because they were troubled by the departure of several of their members on bad terms. Several of their members had left on bad terms, which is troubling. And so he wrote to this church that he had started. And it appears that the folks who left the church were insisting on certain teachings. It wasn't just we left for personal preferences or whatever. Um, They were insisting on certain teachings, certain views of Jesus Christ that were ultimately incompatible with the apostolic Teaching about Jesus Christ, what, what John the Apostle had taught this church from the beginning and established it in the gospel, in the truth of the gospel. So, <clears throat> now this is probably outside of our regular experience in church, but try to put yourself in their shoes for just a minute, which of course um, is the best way to read the Bible, is to uh, imagine yourself in the shoes of the original audience, uh, to try to put yourself in their shoes in order to figure out its significance for them first, and then there's significance for yourself that you can draw from that. Um, it's not something that we're very good at being uh, people from a totally different culture uh, in a totally different society than uh, the recipients of the scriptures, but, um, but we should try. And so let's imagine what it's like to be them. You're a small church. That part we could probably relate to, right? Something probably about our size in a Roman city, right? A city in the Roman Empire. The church hasn't been around long enough to really feel established, uh, it hasn't been around long enough to dramatically change the world yet, uh, which it would, but it hasn't, hasn't even uh, been around long enough so that you know, people might ask what a Christian is and people might not know at all, right? So, um, but people are starting to think when they do encounter Christianity, especially the official things they've heard about it from uh, the emperor and such, uh, is that the church is probably a real threat, right? The church is something we should be suspicious of People from your Jewish religious heritage, which Christianity came from the Jewish stream, uh, those people hate you. And then the people from the, the Gentile, the pagan, the Roman world, uh, are the, your cultural heritage. They're at least suspicious of you. And persecutions are starting up. So uh, your brothers and sisters are starting to suffer and die because of um, the people around you. And, and then a third of your church keeps insisting, you know what, you don't really know God. And then they leave. How does that feel? How do you think that feels? The closest parallel uh, for them leaving, they they pack up and they they leave to start a new cult, basically. And the closest parallel that we have for that is if a third of our people packed up and went to the Mormon church. Um, it's It's a cult based on special secret knowledges that they don't think other Christians have because all they have is the scriptures, right? You need, to, you need to be taught this special secret knowledge. And there are special secret practices that, uh, that we have to participate in. But they use a lot of the same language that we do about God and Jesus and salvation, right? They use a lot of the same language, but clearly we're talking about a different God and a different Jesus and a different kind of salvation, right? But they use the same language, um, so that makes it confusing, right? If all of that happened in your church, how would you feel? Right? How would you feel? Uh, it's the kind of thing that generates a lot of insecurity, a lot of doubt, a lot of second-guessing. You start second-guessing the whole thing. You second-guess yourself. Maybe you're wrong after all. Maybe you don't really know God, like they're saying. Like they're, they're insisting and they're leaving because they think you don't really know God. Maybe they're right. I don't know. After all, the the people that left, they're they're intelligent people. And they're passionate people. And they're people that the society really respects. Um, And the mere fact of their leaving is painful. When people that you're close to have deep disagreements on points that are fundamental to your heart and fundamental to your mind and your life and then they break relationship with you over those disagreements, that hurts a lot, right? Uh, And it causes you to question everything that you thought you knew. I mean, we might not have the identical circumstances in our experience, but I think we can relate a little bit when we, you know, we feel quite the same when, um, when our faith is rejected by the people that we care about or the people that we hold in high esteem, right? When they reject our Christianity, whether it's Christianity in general that they're rejecting or our faith personally that they're rejecting. Uh... You know, when you look at a brilliant scientist who laughs at Christianity and spends all of his time trying to dismantle the, the notion of, of a Christian God, but he's a brilliant scientist, right? Or when your family members refuse, absolutely refuse ever to talk about Jesus with you, right? Um, that shakes you pretty deeply. And if you're not fixed on the gospel, if you're not riveted on the truth of God's word and his grace, his, in the gospel, um, then you could be in a pretty bad state of doubt and insecurity, right? Um, the congregation John was writing to was feeling that, that kind of insecurity from the painful departure of these antichrists is what John calls them. So antichrist, it just means it's an opponent of Christ, someone who is against Christ, right? Um, <clears throat> and they weren't necessarily opponent. This is the tricky part. They're not necessarily opponents of Christ, Because they're openly advocating against Jesus. They're not saying, down with Jesus. We hate Jesus. Jesus is not real, or whatever. That's not the kind of antichrist they are. They're antichrists because their teachings about Jesus that they were insisting on, they were just wrong. They were distorted. They either emphasized his divinity to the exclusion of his true humanity... Or they emphasized his humanity to the denial of his true divinity. Right. Um, and historically, there have been a lot of spin offs of Christianity where people teach things like this, and they are labeled heterodox, not orthodox. Uh, heterodox. They're heresies, right? And these are the antichrists. These people start off in the church, right? And they, they still profess faith in Christ in some way. So it can be confusing, at least. And John here, when he's addressing this, he's, um, he's trying to help the people in the church through this kind of an encounter. Um, he doesn't say to the church, hey, everybody start freaking out. There's antichrists here. It's the end of the world, <laughs> right? He uses some of that language, but that's not the attitude. That's not, that's not the tone that's conveyed. It's like you need to be afraid, right, because of the antichrists. Among us, he reassures them that even this schism, as painful and distressing as it is, is actually part of God's plan, and it's really no big surprise. It's really no big surprise. Um, he says in the first two verses of our passage, Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Right. So John says some pretty interesting things here about the last hour. And I'm sure you're all dying to know more about the Antichrist. We're not going to get into that uh, here, sorry, go read Revelation this week, that'll really clear things up for you. Um, But suffice it to say, the end time, or the last hour, which he's talking about here, he's talking about the the time of the end, as the New Testament uh, most frequently communicates it and understands it, uh, it's the time between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming, his return. It's that time um, in between the first and second comings of Christ and that time the apostles say, will be uh, characterized at least partially by opposition to him. Opposition, people who are against Christ. And the point John is making is that these antichrists, the heretics who left the church because of incompatible teachings about Jesus, who are still making some profession of faith in some kind of Jesus, but it's not the right one, it's not the true one, Uh, They're an indication that what God said about the last hour is true, and in fact, their leaving helps to clarify for everyone, by contrast, what it means really to know God and really to have eternal life, to know the true God. Their departure helps to clarify that by contrast. In fact, it's implied here that God's the one who orchestrated their departure, so that it might be plain to you that they're not of us. There's a distinction here. You need to know that distinction. God's not doing it to cause the church to distress or to anguish or to doubt their salvation, but to distinguish between true and false believers to enable discernment on matters that should be of primary fundamental importance and to highlight what you need to know if you're going to have real assurance about eternal life. He says, I write these things to you uh, about those who are trying to deceive you, right? So he's trying to expose the deception these people were saying, you don't really know Jesus. Let me tell you the secret knowledge that I have and come and join us, this thing that's not really the church, right? Uh, they're trying to deceive the Christians, and he's saying, I'm, I'm trying to expose that deception for what it is. I'm trying to reassure you with the truth of the gospel. He says, the first thing, you've got to stick to the truth. You've got to hang on to it. Uh, you've got to abide in it, right? So the first point that we're making is abiding in the truth. Uh, he writes in verses 21 and 24, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, which is what these antichrists were saying. You don't know the truth. Let me tell it to you. And he's trying to assure them, you already know it. And I'm not writing to you because you don't know it. I'm I'm trying to reinforce what you already know, right? I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let it abide in you. So literally here, John says to let the gospel truth abide in you. Uh, and in, uh, in his gospel, he has Jesus saying kind of the flip version of that. In John 8.31, uh, he says, if you abide. So he's saying, let the word abide in you. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, uh, you'll be my tru- truly You'll be my disciples. Um, so abiding in the truth and letting the truth abide in you is kind of the same thing, right? Um, <clears throat> so despite the pain of this conflict, despite the efforts of the deceivers who are trying to lead you away from the truth of the gospel you know the truth, you've heard it from the beginning of this church, right? of this community and you need to let that truth sink into your heart you need to live it you need to get that truth in front of you as often as you can you need to preach it to yourself you need to constantly latch on to the truth that you already know, you've already heard this um, because there's clearly a difference between the truth that you know and the lies that are being propagated, right? There is a difference. And uh, truth and lies are mutually exclusive. Right? They're mutually exclusive. You cannot hold them together. Um, we watched The Life of Pi the other night. I don't know if you've all seen that, but the main character <clears throat> is from India, and uh, he's on a spiritual journey through his life, and it's kind of a story about him finding God, kind of. Um, But he started in Hinduism with its 330 million gods or manifestations of the one God or whatever it is. And he kind of made his way through Catholicism, and he picked up Jesus as maybe another God or a manifestation of God, kind of tacked that on And then he made his way into Islam, finished up there where he learned the prayer practices that really resonated with him, that kind of connection that he feels to God or gods. Uh, And that's kind of what his spirituality was made up of. So he's a a Hindu Catholic Muslim. And in the end, he pretty much acknowledges that his view of God really just amounts to his preferred view of the story of life. It's just kind of what he prefers. And that's probably a commonly held idea in our culture, this concept that, you know, all religions are kind of the same. We can add, mix, and match, and kind of cobble our own thing together, whatever we like best. And whatever we think explains the world in a way that we like, right? Um, But that is totally without intellectual integrity, right? If there's a truth, then things that are different from it or contradict it are lies, they're wrong, right? That's the way truth works. Um, if Hinduism is true, for example, then Christianity and Islam cannot be true. If Christianity is true, then Hinduism and Islam can't be true, right? Uh, because they teach things that are opposed to each other on a fundamental level. And if you ask anybody in any, you know, who's like really a devoted person to their religion, one of these Hindus or uh, Catholics or Muslims, if you ask them, hey, Is it okay that we all just kind of meld this together? They say, no, that that violates what we believe, right? Um, So the, you know, there's a difference between truth and lies and the way to be able to discern the truth from the lies so that you can steer away from the lies and abide in the truth, the way to do that is not to study everything. You don't have to have a doctorate in all the world's religions without having missed any of them Uh, The way to know the difference between truth and lies is not to study every system of thought, every religious claim. That would be impossible. Nobody could do that. The way to be able to discern the truth from the lies um, is to study the truth, is to abide in the truth. That's what John is saying. Stick to the truth. Stay right there in it. You know, uh, when someone is taught to recognize counterfeit money or counterfeit art, they don't pour over all the details of all the fakes, right? That would be impossible. What they do is they pour over the details of the original, the true art, the real paper money. They know that stuff inside and out so that they're able to recognize the counterfeit when they see it. So when you're faced with people or teachings or ideas that threaten to undermine your assurance here, is what this is talking about, Uh, that cause you to question the reality of your relationship with God. Do I really have the truth? Is what they're saying true? Um, You need to abide in God's word. You need to abide in the truth of the gospel to be able to see how these other competing ideas are competing ideas. And they're deceitful, and they're lies, and they're wrong. Right? Um, He says in 22 and 23, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So there's some way in which these heretics were denying the reality of who Jesus is. There's some way in which they're denying the reality of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. Um, no one who denies the Son has the Father. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the truth, John is saying, that is supremely important for us to hold on to, that you need to know that you need to abide in, is the truth about the Trinity, as the Trinity is revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, right? God is triune. He is one God. He is one being whose being, whose essence is three persons, right? Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one equally God, each one holy God, each one not less than holy God, yet only one God, right? Um, Try to understand how that works. You spend the rest of your life doing that, and that's great. you spend the rest of eternity trying to figure out God, right? But, um, but we know that it's true. We might not know how it's true. We know that it's true, that God is triune. We know it from God's word, which we take on its own authority. We take God's word on its own authority. So um, just a side note, you know, one might say it's illegitimate to do that, to appeal to something as its own authority, Uh, They might say that that um, is circular to take God at his word because God said we should take him at his word. He said that in his word, (laughs) right? Um, But when you're talking about ultimate authority, it's always going to be circular reasoning. It's always going to be a circular argument to appeal to its own authority. Otherwise, if we're trying to say, we believe God's word because of this authority over here that really tells us that God's word is true, uh, then you've just made that thing the ultimate authority. And... um, So, and then God's word would no longer be ultimate, but would depend on another authority. So um, anyone who makes a claim, an an appeal to ultimate authority, ultimately that that claim has to be a circular thing, if it's truly ultimate. Side note, over. In God's word, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, everywhere it's made clear that there's only one God. Anything else that pretends to be a God, anything else we've imagined, uh, set up as a God, carved out of a piece of wood and set that up or whatever. uh, It's not a God. There's only one God and we know something of what he's like. He is a God, gracious and merciful. right? He's at the same time righteous and just. He is holy. He's completely unlike his creation. He's a creator who is distinct from his creation and yet he is close and intimate and involved with his creation. He created all things. He's the redeemer He's the savior of his people, right? These are things that we know for sure about the one God that we see clearly over and over again in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we see this one God clearly in three persons, not three gods, three persons in one God, because we know he's one God. Uh, We see him clearly in three persons first and most dramatically. We see this in the baptism of Jesus Christ. Right, The beginning of the Gospels record the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. We've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God, came into the world, also became a man, and he's being baptized. And his Father, who is God, is proclaiming him beloved, and he's being baptized and anointed with the, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Right? So the three persons of the one God simultaneously present in audible, visible, even tangible ways. Right, One God, three persons. So God is triune, and we see that, we see it because God has revealed himself to us in the second person of the Trinity. Because the second person, the Son of God, came into the world, came in the flesh, was incarnated, that's what that means. Incarnated uh, means enfleshed He became a human, right? So he didn't cease to be God. He's always been God and he always will be God fully. But at his conception by the spirit in Mary's womb, he added a new created human nature to himself and was born and was named Jesus. And now he, from now on, uh, from then on, he will remain God and man together in the same person uh, forever. And so we see God's triune nature. We see the fact that there is one God in three persons because he revealed the truth about himself when the Son became a human. We see that God is triune because we've seen the incarnation. And when the Son became a human, we learned that God is truly and really a trinity, that that truth, that doctrine, when we learned that, it rose instantly to the level of essential, fundamental, right? Because God revealed himself this way. He came into the world in order to save us, in order to have a relationship with us, in order that we might know him as he truly is, in order to bring us eternal life. And so the ancient creeds... You know what the, the creeds are doing in the ancient church is trying to boil down what it means to know God, to be in a relationship with him, those, those fundamental, essential doctrines, the teachings of the Holy Scriptures. You've got all of God's word. How can we sum it up to be able to understand our relationship with God? So we've got things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which we're going to proclaim in a, a few minutes together. And other creeds, the Athanasian Creed, they all understand the tremendous significance of these truths. The fact that the, the Trinity is revealed through the Incarnation. Right? Because, uh, and they, they seek to distill the truth of the Scriptures down to these essentials. If you believe this, you really know God. If you don't believe this, chances are you probably don't know God. Right? Um, and these creeds highlight the truths of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Right? The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are structured on the Trinity, Three statements, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, with particular focus on the incarnation of the Son. Right, That big section in the middle. On the Son, the incarnate Son. Right? Uh, so it's the Trinity and the incarnation. And the Athanasian Creed uh, says, Whoever will be saved, before all things it's necessary that he hold the universal faith, which faith, except everyone, do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. So if you don't have this faith, you don't have eternal life. And if anybody's going to be saved, you've got to have this faith, this universal Catholic is the word there, but it's universal faith. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Um, And then the Athanasian Creed goes on to expound on the Trinity and the Incarnation. So, Those are the truths we've got to immerse ourselves in, right? And if you do, if you let the word you've heard from the beginning abide in you, the word about who God is and what he's done for you in Christ, the Trinity and the Incarnation, then you're in a position to be strengthened in assurance that you really do know him and also to discern between the truth and errors or counterfeits. Um, when the Mormons then come to your door, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, you don't have to know everything about what they teach. That would probably be impossible, right? Uh, Because they don't even know everything about what they believe, right? You just have to know where they stand on the biblical doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Are they the biblical doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation? They might say you're talking about the same God, but you're not. You're not. And in reality, you'll discover that um, they're in effect, they're trying to deceive you, and they're trying to persuade you to disbelieve the Trinity and disbelieve the Incarnation. Right? Unitarians are another spin-off of the Christian Church, right? Because uh, they keep the name Christian, but they're not Trinitarians, they're Unitarians, one God, one person not three persons, right? Um, they continue to use the name Christian, but they're not. All of these would go by that name, Christian. All of them would use the same kind of language to talk about God, but according to this, they're against Christ. They're antichrists, right? And so the litmus test for them to, to determine whether they're of us or not, whether we really do share this fellowship and we're together in the, in the faith, uh, do they believe in the Trinity? So they believe in the Incarnation. You know? Hold the Apostles' Creed in front of them. Hold the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed in front of them. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. <clears throat> so we've got to abide in the truth, and I don't mean that you've got to feel superior to others because you've got the truth, right? That is not the way to hold on to the truth because you really know God and they don't. Um, that, that superiority thing is actually their game. Right? That's the game they're trying to play. Knowing the truth and abiding in it for our assurance is different from finding our righteousness in our knowledge. Right? Uh, it's easy to get self-righteous about our knowledge, that we've really got the corner on the truth, right? But that attitude is antithetical to the truth that we know. And it's antithetical to the way that we should know it. We don't know the truth because we're amazing, because we're brilliant geniuses, right? That's not why we know the truth that we know. We know the truth about God, about the Trinity and the Incarnation, because he has graciously revealed it to us. We would have no hope of knowing it otherwise. We don't deserve to know it, let alone we couldn't figure it out on our own apart from his help. So no matter how smart we are, we know the truth because God has graciously revealed it to us. And the truth that we know about him, about the Trinity and about the Incarnation, it includes knowledge of ourselves as sinful creatures, humble creatures, right, who are in need of forgiveness and transformation on a level that you will never comprehend. You will never even know in this life how much you need to be changed, right? Um, So the whole point of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to find our righteousness not in ourselves or in our knowledge, right? to find our righteousness and our identity and our security and our assurance in Jesus Christ, in his story, his life and death and resurrection for us, his work on our behalf, um, not in ourselves. So abiding in the truth of the gospel is, uh, is what assures us that we truly have a relationship with God, with the real God, with the triune God, through Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And that's something, John says, that we have to do together. So moving to the second point. The bulk of the time was spent on the first point. It's not all going to be that long. The second point is that um, that we're to abide in the church together, right? We have to hold on to the truth together. Uh, It might not be the clearest element in our passage, but it's certainly there. You can't live the Christian life on your own. You can't stay strong in the faith on your own. You can't abide in the truth by yourself, right, or be assured of your salvation by yourself. You just can't it's not the way god made you it's not the way god set it up how do we know john's saying this first of all everything he says he says to the church right it's not to individuals it's to the church he, he said, i write to you plural you don't see that much with the english but it's there in the, the original language it's plural i write to you let what you all plural whole uh, heard from the beginning abide in you plural right Um, so uh, he's talking to the church and second he points out the necessity of persevering in the church in the community with other believers for our assurance when he says in verse 19 they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us they would have continued with us if someone is truly in a relationship with God they will be in a relationship with God's people um and they will continue with the church, and that word translated continue should have been translated abide, right? Because that's the same word. Um, if they had been of us, they would have abided with us. So you've got to make your home in the church, abiding, you know. You've got to, that's, that's the language that's being used. You've got to make it your home. You've got to dwell in it. You've got to abide with God's people as we seek together to abide and remain and continue in God, in his truth, right? You need the support of the community of faith. Uh, In the Bible, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't go to church. You need that support. He set it up for us all to be together. Um, He's given us each various types of gifts to build one another up, but we need each other, right? You need the support of the church. And we need more than just friends. We need more than just fellowship. We need like, purposeful fellowship. We need discipleship, right? Uh, we need um, each other to rivet our attention on the Trinity and Jesus Christ, to rivet our attention on the gospel. We need each other to do that, to train each other how to do that better. Right? Um, we need mutual encouragement in the faith to hear wiser thoughts than ours, uh, to hear different perspectives than ours. We need to be in relationships where We help each other grow spiritually. We need to hear the gospel proclaimed regularly and rightly. Um, Because left to ourselves, the truth of God is so foreign to us that we won't stick to it. We won't abide in it. We won't continue in it. We won't remember to apply it. Um, We need to abide in the church, not just to bolster our faith as a means to the end of assurance... So that we can know that we really do know God, we need to abide in the church because it's an expression of our salvation. I mean, community among believers is a huge goal of the truth, it's a huge goal of God's work in the world and in our lives. Uh, The heretics in John's day chose independence, they chose secession and uh, exclusion, right? Uh, Real Christians choose to continue with each other because of the gospel, because of the gospel. Tim Keller said, if this world was made by a triune God, a being of community, then relationships of love are what life is really all about. You need to abide in that. And the, James Torrance says, God is in the business of creating community. That's a good summary statement of his uh, work with the church, his work in the world to create a church, a community of people who are his people. right? So if you really know this God, this triune God, whose business is creating community, then you'll engage in that business and you'll abide in the community of the church even though there are all sorts of things that would work against that. You are all sorts of things that would threaten the unity that we have and seek to dismantle uh, the church. In fact, <clears throat> it's when things are working against the unity of the church that we see most clearly that God is the one who's holding it together by his grace, right? When things are working against the church, seeking to dismantle its unity, that's when you see this thing is being held together by God in his grace. When the Antichrists left the church that John was writing to, that kind of division is so painful it can cause people to just give up. I, I don't even know if I should be part of this anymore. right? But um, John calls attention to the fact that that was part of God's plan. right, And that Uh, Jesus says that he's going to grow his church and nothing will be able to stop it. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that we have the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. There's one body, there's one Spirit, there's one Lord, there's one Father of all. And we have that unity, we have it as a feature of the gospel. Because God is a trinity and because God came into the world to save us and redeem us and unite us all to himself through the person of his Son, we have unity as like a fruit of the gospel it 's a goal of the Gospel, and we should maintain that unity through the power of the Gospel, so that we can be reassured of the reality of the gospel. Right? We have it, we should maintain it, and in doing so it 'll convince us all that the gospel really is it really is true it 's really at work here. Um, so when we do abide together in unity, when we speak the truth to one another in love in order to build up one another, then that 's a testimony to the grace of God to the Spirit of God at work, and you can be assured that you really do know him. You're in the place where the people know him, right? Um, And then third, abiding in the Trinity. John gives us assurance that we have eternal life when we abide in the Trinity because they're one and the same thing. We have eternal life when we abide in the Trinity because they are identical things, They're synonymous. Abiding in the Trinity, knowing God, having eternal life, being saved, that, those are synonyms, right? Um, it says in verse 24 and 25, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life, right? Um, he's describing what it means to abide in the Son and the Father. That's eternal life. And he says in 20, you've been anointed by the Holy One. And in 27, the anointing that you received from him, the Holy One is Jesus, it abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, like these deceivers are saying, you you don't really have the truth, I've got to instruct you. You don't need that, because his anointing teaches you. His anointing, Jesus anoints you with the Spirit, right? And the Spirit teaches you about everything, and the Spirit is true, is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Abide in Christ. So the anointing, it's the Spirit of God. It's the love of God poured into our hearts. He's the presence of God with us. He's the presence of God in us. He's the blessing of God given to us. And Jesus is the Holy One because of his anointing with the Spirit, right? And he has anointed us with the same Spirit. It's the Spirit that he received from his Father at his baptism. We read about the, the prophecy of this that took place several hundred years before it happened in Isaiah. In the Old Testament reading, Dave read Isaiah 61, where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, is upon me. Because Yahweh anointed me. The Spirit's upon me because God anointed me. And one of the results is that, is to grant the oil of gladness to others. Right? and uh, that's, that's a phrase you see in Psalm 45, which we read in our prayer earlier this morning. And uh, Hebrews 1, 9, where it says, God has anointed you, talking about Jesus, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The oil of gladness is the spirit, the spirit of delight, the spirit of love, the spirit of God. Right? Um, and Jesus has been anointed with that spirit in order to anoint you with that spirit, in order to anoint you with that oil of gladness. So when we abide in the truth together, we abide in the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that is the essence of what eternal life is. That is what eternal life is. In the Scripture, eternal life isn't life that doesn't stop, life of a limitless quantity or duration, right? In the Scripture, that's not what eternal life is. It's life of a certain quality. And the quality, the nature of this life is knowing God the Trinity through the incarnate Son. Right. Uh, Jesus says that in John 17. This is eternal life. And that's kind of what John's talking about here in First jo- uh, John 2. But he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Knowing the Trinity through the Incarnate Son is eternal life. That's the substance of eternal life. That's the goal of our salvation. It's what you're saved for. It's intimate, knowing uh, relationship of, with God. Right? There's, this is no mere intellectual religion. It's no mere moral religion. This is personal, relational, spiritual religion, as in religion of the Spirit. Right? Uh, so... If you have that, if you abide in the Trinity, then you have eternal life, because that's what that is, right? Um, and I'm telling you, if you trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have it. Right? That's what John is saying. You have that. You abide in the Son, and the Spirit abides in you. If you abide in the Word, you abide in the Son and in the Father, right? You've got this relationship with God. You're anointed with the same Spirit that the Father gave to His Son when He said, You're my beloved Son. With you i am well pleased. So if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have His Spirit, which means you enjoy the relationships of the Trinity as if you were a member of the Trinity. As if you were a member of the Holy Trinity because you have the Spirit the same way that the Son has the Spirit. Because the Father has given it to you. And you have the Father as the Son has the Father because you're in the Son and you re- enjoy that relationship with the Father even as the Son does. Thomas Aquinas said a long time ago that the purpose and fruit of our whole life, the purpose and fruit of our whole life is the knowledge of the Trinity in unity. That means we know the Trinity from a place of unity with the Trinity. Right? We know the Trinity from the inside, as, even as one of the members of the Trinity because we're in the Son by God's grace so if you're a Christian if you believe along with us that God is triune and that Jesus is his son Jesus is the Christ the son of God come in the flesh then you are as, uh, as Fred Sanders says in his book The Deep Things of God you are already immersed in the reality of the Trinity like a man who found a treasure hid in a field that he didn't have to buy because he already owned it it's true of you If you believe the truth and you abide in it with us, you abide in the Son and the Father and the Spirit. You already have him as a treasure hidden in a field that you didn't have to buy. You already owned it. You are in Christ, in the Son's position, in the relationships of the Trinity. You have eternal life because you have intimate relational knowledge of God. You do abide in the Trinity, so don't let anyone convince you otherwise. If you trust the person and work of Christ, you can rest assured that you really do know the one true God, and that's the truth of God's word to you. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would fix our eyes on your Son, Jesus Christ, in such a way that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, that we would have the full assurance of faith that because you are who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and because you have come in the person of your son to do the things that you have done for us once and for all, restoring us to relationship with you, because of these truths, the truths of the good news, we can know with full assurance that we have a relationship with you, and that is eternal life. We pray that you would fix our eyes on that, that you would help us never to forget it when we struggle with insecurity or doubt or pain in relationships, or any suffering in any way in this life, we pray that you would fix our eyes, that you would rivet our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.